I'm Rebecca, and we are Mama Bear Apologetics. We're just two gals talking about life's big questions from a biblical worldview. Because when it comes to the battle of ideas, we need to be able to say, mess with my kids and I will demolish your arguments. You mess, I demolish. Got it? Capiche? <laughs> Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I am not Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so Rebecca is in hell hell tonight. That's what I was kind of joked with hell, her about. Hell hell? Hell hell because uh, she's, uh, she got asked by the Christian Research Journal to write an article on hell. Mm. So she's like right in the midst of that. So I was <laughs> kind of emailing her today going, how's hell going? Nice. Um, so today I have Elisa Childers with me. And so she's one of our mama bears that you should be familiar with that we did the podcast on progressive Christianity. I kind of consider you sort of our our progressive Christianity expert within the mama bears. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Whenever anyone asks me about anything progressive Christianity, I'm like, Elisa Childers, you need to talk to her. Um, but so Lisa, you brought something to my attention this week that is making the rounds. And since you're kind of more in that progressive Christianity, um, I guess you're still within those circles that you get to see a lot of this stuff that, that I don't see because I I haven't ever really been in those circles, but Mm -hmm everybody's fairly familiar with the name Jen Hatmaker and she's been, so just remind us again, how did she like really come to the forefront? What was it a year ago? Yeah. I mean, she's always been fairly popular, especially in the last several years, but about, I guess it was last, I think a year ago, last October, somewhere in there. That was April or no, April was when she had that blog out. April was the, yeah, when she kind of was the first time she emerged and kind of spoke after the, the big, the big reveal, the big <sighs> reveal. <laughs> yes. That's, that's kind of what it was. So, so about a year ago, um, Jen and her husband, Brandon sort of, uh, kind of came out and said that their theology regarding LGBT inclusion had shifted or had changed. She, she was interviewed by Jonathan Merritt and uh, sort of kind of announced that in that interview. And, and as a side note, I just want to say, I don't like the term LGBT inclusion because it, it implies that, that other churches don't allow LGBT people to come. And I don't like that because that's, yeah. that's not everybody's welcome. We want everybody to come and hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so I don't like the term inclusion. Um, but I think it's one of those buzzwords where it's like, you see this a lot, you know, you see this with pro-life and pro-choice. It's if we know that we have these very polar words that if I call my camp, this, then that, that kind of infers that the other camp is the opposite. So if we're the LGBT inclusion, they're the LGBT exclusionaries. Even the, honestly, I read the Nashville statement, even the Nashville statement affirms just the, um, the LGBT community being made in the image of God and being precious before the Lord. Yeah, and I like kind of like what uh, Sean McDowell said just recently last week in his debate yeah. with Matthew Vines, who is also a proponent for what he would call LGBT inclusion. Um, Sean said, you know, because there's there's this also this turn mm-hmm. affirming. You know, we're an affirming yeah. church, and he was saying I don't I don't accept that that word because he says I'm also affirming, but I'm affirming of Jesus's yeah. position. You know, and so I kind of like the way that that he framed that. But anyway, um, to use their term, you know, her theology had shifted. And, you know, we're talking about a person that has a following on Facebook at the time 
of, uh, I think, close to 600,000 people. Wow. So that's over half a million there. Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about an incredibly popular author, blogger, speaker. Um, I mean, I'm sure all of our listeners have read an yeah. article of hers at w- one point or another. Got to be under a rock not to have heard that yeah, name at this point. Yeah, you know, point. and she's, she's funny. She's engaging. She kind of has this writing style where you feel like you're just talking with your best friend and relatable and all that stuff. So I, I get I get the popularity. But because of the popularity, there was a tremendous amount of pushback. There were Mm -hmm. all kinds of people writing articles and there was sort of this whole thing that blew up on her Facebook page um, where a lot of people were confused and, you know, it was just, it was kind of a mess. And I I actually wrote an article at the time as well that I, I believe was very loving, but just sort of, you know, it was important to address this because so many people really were confused because it's like, can I be a Christian and believe this? I I don't know. Maybe she'll clarify. I mean, you saw all these people (laughs) saying these things on her Facebook page. So she kind of went, uh, under what I mean is she, she, she wisely, I think just wasn't saying a lot publicly after that. Um, and so she reemerged last April and wrote a blog post and it was sort of like comparing her suffering with the suffering of Christ. It was on Good Friday that she oh, put out the that. article. Yeah. Oh, that one made me cringe. And I, I yeah. yeah. Well, that kind of, it kind of brings us to the point of uh, the title of this podcast. So Elisa and I went back and forth a lot trying to decide what to title this podcast. And so we finally came up with the title, Is Jen Hatmaker Suffering for the Kingdom? The Power of a Deconversion Story. So we were originally going to be titling it something about the theology, but we realized we weren't really necessary. It's like Jen's theology is going to come into play here, but really what we're going to be talking about today is how powerful the deconversion stories are. In fact, you also found a, an article by Michael Kruger, which is excellent, which I will be recommending. Yeah, uh, We'll include those in the podcast notes that just kind of talks about the formula for t- uh, for deconversion. And if I can even just, uh, do, do you have that up, his main points? I can pull it up real quick. And, and just yeah. while I'm pulling that up, you know, she would probably push back on it being called a deconversion story. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Because I don't think, she, yeah. Yeah. She, she would say, I'm a Christian. I take the Bible seriously. I, I take my relationship with Jesus seriously. But I think that uh, Michael Kruger rightly calls it a deconversion story because mm-hmm. really I would argue, and I argued in the piece I wrote, and many have argued, that when you change your mind on what the definition of sin is, then you're really changing the gospel. You know, We're actually going to go into that a little bit when she makes a comment in, in the radio interview, which is what we're discussing today that she did with uh, Pete Enns where she makes the claim that uh, there was nothing that, that nothing that everybody agreed on ever, right. basically, in all of Christendom. And I'm thinking, well, the purpose of the creeds, the early creeds, was so that they could say, this is what we all agree on. So, I mean, that just kind of shows an ignorance of church yeah. history. That's a big argument in the progressive world, though, that, that is like any time you start talking about church history or, you know, what Christians have always believed for 2,000 years, every time I do that in that world, you know, the pushback is, oh my gosh, they've never agreed on anything, you know, nothing. <laughs> so yeah. it's just it, the, the way it's portrayed is that there's never been this sort of skeleton of uh, core beliefs that has made Christianity unique in the world. But let's um, let's talk about this article from Michael Kruger, because I think it's so well put. I've never actually seen somebody put all of this together quite in this yeah. way. But in my experience in the progressive world, this just rings so mm-hmm. true. 
So he's talking about the deconversion story. And there are many of them, which I'll, I'll kind of talk about in a second. But here are his points. So the step one that you'll see often with people doing this is that they will recount the negatives of their fundamentalist past. <laughs> Heavy emphasis on the word fundamentalist, because this is something you and I have discovered that both within the atheist community and the progressive Christian community, there is a strong correlation of coming out of a hyper-fundamentalist church. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, in the the interview where Jen Hatmaker's talking with Pete ends, she describes exactly what you and I have talked about saying, this is the seedbed for producing progressive Mm. Christianity and atheists. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. So the sure, first, yeah. first point, yeah. And then the second step is position yourself as the offended party who bravely fought the establishment. Ooh. You know, it's like, you know, the, the stick it to the man. Yeah. That's <laughs> like <itis. laughs> every good movie right now. Every, every good story is all about the oppressed. And, and we're, we're a society that's so obsessed with victimhood. So if I can make myself the victim, that's going to just resonate with people. So it's like a competition of who's, who's the biggest victim. Right, right. And then step three is portray your old group as overly dogmatic while you are just a seeker. And this is a big one because this is what you'll hear time and time again with these deconversion stories is that, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, you know, they were afraid to ask questions. I wasn't allowed to ask questions. And I'm just, I'm just seeking. I just want to ask the questions, you know, I, mm-hmm. as if there's like this implication that most evangelicals don't ask questions or they've never examined their faith. And if they did, oh boy, they'd end up right where I yeah. am. Well, let's be honest. Like I, I do believe as an apologist, you know, who's gone out, I think there is something to be said that a lot of people do not examine their their faith, and they would rather not ask the questions. The The place where I would disagree is she thinks that as soon as you start asking questions, you'll come out on her side. And it, it's completely cherry picking that it negates all the people who have asked the tough questions that have gone through both sides and have come out on the conservative side. So it, it acts like they don't exist. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, just the, the sheer amount of brilliant scholars in that world that uh, you know, really helped me when I was doubting my faith. I know that there are so many evangelicals that have gone to the deep end of the pool and come back up believing the same things that those, uh, you know, early Christians believed in those creeds. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's always a fair, and this is interesting too. I'll just share this as a little side note. When, you know, for anybody who doesn't know my story, my faith was actually challenged in a progressive church. I never fully bought it, but I liked the idea of the way people were thinking, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was asking these questions and they were asking these questions that was very attractive. And I remember at one point thinking, oh yeah, my past, like nobody let me ask these questions. I remember thinking that that Mm -hmm. way and going, and then when I really thought it through, I went, no, that's not true at all. <laughs> I, I could have asked any of my youth pastors. I just didn't think of these questions back then. Yeah. You know, and so I do wonder how often that is a, a part of it. Like sometimes I want, I don't want to like say someone's story isn't true. It's their story. But I do wonder like if we could go back to the, the Southern Baptist roots that she talks about, like, is it that they told her and, and implied that these questions were not allowed or did nobody really 
think of them back yeah. then in youth group. Were we just too busy eating pizza and doing mission trips to Mexico? I don't know. <laughs> you know? Well, I think but, sometimes kids will interpret, um, when they're being taught stuff, they will just assume that the authority does not want them to question this. And so even if the authority never states, don't question this, it's like, there are some churches, like I have heard stories. I have heard stories sure. of churches that are like, you know, good Christian boys and girls don't ask these kinds of things. Or there was this one girl, oh my gosh, that, um, a girl in our small group told me about a friend that actually got kicked out of a small group for asking too many questions. She was like a new believer and so excited. So it's like, I know this stuff exists, um, I've never personally seen it because I grew up with a pastor who said from the pulpit every single week, don't take my word for this. Go look it up for yourselves. Um, Right. So it's like, I want to acknowledge the world that she has been in. It's like, you know, maybe it was like that. Maybe it wasn't. It's it's one of those situations where perception is reality. If that's how she perceived Mm -hmm, it, then that's mm -hmm. how she experienced it. Um, I'm not saying that's the way we evaluate truth, but for someone's past experience, that that's how they, you know, that was their perception. Well, and there's an interesting, I've heard Brett Kunkel talk about this when he goes to youth groups and stuff, he'll get up and talk about some of this stuff and somebody will inevitably say, yeah, but you know, Christians treat gay people so horribly in church and that's making me question my faith and all this. And so he was telling the story of this, this one young man where that was the case. And the young man was just going on about how badly Christians treat gay people. And so Brett was like, man, that's awful. I mean, that sounds, that sounds terrible. You know, and like, like, so tell me about what you've experienced in the church. Like you've seen this happen where people, and the guy actually, once he asked him that question, realized he had actually never seen anybody treated badly or even heard anybody treated badly. It's just, it's that, um, caricature. It's a narrative. It is a narrative. Now I'm not saying it's never true. Yeah. I'm sure it is, but it's definitely, um, all evangelicals are lumped into that narrative yeah. for sure, mm-hmm. which brings us to step number five, which is attack the character of your old group and uplift the character of your new group. Mm-hmm. So, and this is where she brings in the idea of the fruit of yeah. the non-affirming tree being bad and the affirming tree yeah. being, being good. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's just, um, so first off, um, if you get a chance, we're going to put a link to this, interview on in the podcast notes. So I I encourage you to go listen to it because actually I, I kind of want to tell you how I experienced the the interview. And I'll, I want to see if anybody else had the same experience. So Elisa was sitting there saying how upset she was about it. And I thought, ooh, this is going to be bad. And so I had it playing today. I was, you know, I was at the dentist and having it played, thought, you know, well, here, let's multitask. And the first part of it, so it's about, it's about an hour long. Is that right? Yeah. No, it's about 45 minutes. Yeah, 45 minutes. Yeah. So like the first 25, 30 minutes, I was sitting there going, I'm really not sure what Elisa was so upset about. She really hasn't been making any claims that I would disagree with. But then I stopped and thought, wait, no, she hasn't been making any claims. Right. Wait, hold on. She's not making any claims. Like there's something wrong with you. You have a whole podcast and you're not actually saying anything. And so what it reminded me of it. So, well, so long story short about, about, you know, 15 minutes towards the end, all of a sudden that's when they started making the claims and the claims had me, I think I I even skipped texting you. I was doing the voice to text because I had like (laughs) two minute long text, you know, voice text. I'm like, Oh my gosh, she said this. But it reminded me a lot of when I read the book Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, because, you know, of course, growing up, we've heard all and especially as a biologist, you know, heard all about Darwin and, you know, how he gets everybody's 
panties in a twist. And so for one of our classes, we just are supposed to read it for ourselves. And I remember for the first half of it thinking, why was everybody so upset about this? This is not controversial. Like I have nothing wrong with this. And about halfway to two thirds of the way through, all of a sudden the tone changed. And all of a sudden this really careful scientific detail that he'd been going into for all these non-controversial things all of a sudden he starts making these sweeping claims with things that are controversial. And so what I learned through that is one of the things that someone will do in order to gain your trust is they will go into ad nauseum, like detail of stuff that nobody would disagree with. So you're like, Ooh, look how thorough they are. And then when they have lulled you into a sense of safety, then suddenly they'll, they'll kind of pull the bait and switch. And so that's kind of what I saw going on in this, this interview is for the most part, I, I had, she was using all this vague language, stuff like, you know, people making mean comments or that she had been ostracized from her community. And I realized one of the purposes of stating things in a really vague way is that the listener fills in those details Mm. with their own stories. Yeah. And so the listener feels like, oh, I can totally relate with that. I've had that happen to me too. When you have no idea if y'all have had the same thing happen, you've maybe had the same category of thing happened. So now the listener's really, really, um, relating and empathizing with her. And then at the very, very end, after all these, you know, funny banter and she sounds so sweet and, oh, I feel so sorry for her. And she's talked about how hurt she's been all of a sudden then boom, then you bring into the stuff where, you know, nobody's ever agreed on anything. The Bible is an ancient text written by ancient people that's continually changing. And um, all these things that you've told me about that I was kind of like, ah, there it is. And um, so I just want people to kind of be aware of that and listen kind of for that formula. Yeah, that's, that's very good. And I think too, we would be wise to acknowledge like, you know, it had to be a hard year for her, you know, like I totally acknowledge that. Like, uh, you know, some people I've seen in their critiques of her will say, oh, you know, well, she, you know, she didn't really take that much of a hit because her career is doing better than ever, which I would argue it is as well. You know, she's on a a tour that's selling out. She's up like a hundred thousand more Facebook likes from when that happened a year ago. And I mean, her career definitely hasn't taken a hit, but honestly, I can't imagine as a public figure, um, having that many people, you know, disagreeing with me publicly and writing things about me. And for the most part, I don't know all the comments she got. I'm sure she got some nasty ones. I'm sure. Um, Oh, I'm sure I've, yeah, people are, people are brutal on the internet when they don't have to actually say things. Yeah, exactly. But for the most part, like on that day when everything blew up on our Facebook page, I was seeing a lot of people just more, I mean, you can actually, we can put this in the podcast notes too. You can go on and look at the, at the post, but, um, it's interestingly, it's actually the post itself doesn't have anything to do with her article with Jonathan Merritt, but everybody read that and then came over and just started commenting on her, the, whatever the latest post of hers was. So that's where it blew up. (laughs) But I mean, for the most part, there were people that were speaking truth to her that were like, Jen, don't do this. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bible is the word of God. And they were saying things like this. And that other people were saying, Oh, all the hate, I can't stand all the hate. It was a mess. And I, you know, I, I, I fully acknowledge that had to be incredibly difficult but at the same time, yeah. when you are a person uh, with that many followers and you openly promote an idea, you know, especially one as controversial as that, you, you, you have, and she did say she expected pushback. She did say that. Yeah, she said she expected it. She didn't expect how mean they were going to be. And again, mean can be a thing. Like I had someone once like unfriend me and block me and 
say something to another girl about how just like horrifically mean to her I was. And I went back and looked at the conversation and all I had done Mm -hmm. was disagree with her in a really, you know, not, not mean way anyway. But I think what happened with Jen and you could hear the hurt in her Mm -hmm. voice. But the thing that I noticed was that she was talking about how people Mm -hmm. were attacking her faithfulness and her relationship with God. And so that's when I think things get behind. I know that we've talked in Mama Bear before about how we don't demolish people. We Mm -hmm. demolish ideas. And when you start talking about what someone's relationship with God is like, or what, uh, you know, characteristics about them, they must be unfaithful. They must be this, they must be that. You are now attacking the person. And that's not necessary. We need to just, I mean, all, all someone had to do was go to the word of God and say, okay, what is, what are the ideas that she's espousing. Let's look at those and compare those to scripture. We are looking at these ideas and that is the thing that we're wanting to critique. Real quick before we get into the podcast, um, just for some context of what this kind of deconversion story, the power that it holds, she's not the only one that mm-hmm. that is done this. And so I think what Michael Kruger is talking about when he talks about um, in his article, it was something about like why Jen Hatmaker is trying to change your mind about the Bible. So there's like this reverse evangelism going on. And she's Mm -hmm. not the only one. There have been many Christians who have changed their mind on this um, uh, subject, which by the way, always, except in very rare cases, it always includes uh, a, a questioning of everything else, a, atonement theory, yeah. um, the the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Everything's fair game after this subject changes. Yeah, yeah. you're unsure about everything, and that that was kind of the statement where nobody has ever agreed. Uh, you know, everybody's always disagreed on every. I can't remember the exact thing she said, but basically, nobody's ever agreed on anything, which was is patently false. Right, exactly. So the others, like Sarah Bessie, is an, a writer in the progressive world, and a, a while back she wrote an article about her journey out of evangelicalism and kind of was encouraging other people who have left that it's going to be okay. And, and I, you know, Hillary, you and I would agree, you don't have to be an evangelical to be a Christian, but there's no. more going on yeah. to this, to this kind of movement than. It's almost become a dirty word. Yeah, <laughs> I know it has, hasn't it? Um, and then Rachel Held Evans is one of the loudest voices kind of against the yeah. evangelicalism. She wrote an article, John Pavlovitz. In fact, in his blog post, he actually called evangelicalism the bastard love child of the church and state, which is Ooh, a, it's a perfect caricature of what they think. Like they really think that, I, I, in my experience, that every evangelical has a Trump sign on their lawn and a, and a, you know, a safe full of guns, you know, in their <laughs> closet. And they will fight to the death with their Bible and their gun and their Trump sign. You know, that's the caricature. And yeah. there are some people like yeah. that. I mean, of course. There are some people, yeah. It's like we always have to acknowledge that every stereotype, there's a reason why it's a yeah. stereotype because, yeah, we, we've known yeah. people. Um, but they're not my general experience as, you know, evangelical no. Christians. In fact, some of the loudest evangelical voices have been very critical of of president Trump and things like that. So, um, anyway, and then the kind of the last thing is there's this hashtag, the empty, the pews hashtag. And so this is for people leaving evangelicalism and they're using this hashtag to kind of tell their stories. You can go on Twitter and kind of check it out and see what they're saying, but it's, it's, it's not just Jen. It's not just Rob Bell. It's not just, you know, Brian McLaren. There are a lot of people sort of mobilizing 
just this kind of movement to leave, to start something new. And they always refer to themselves as misfits and outcasts and kind of this like yeah. ragtag band of rebels that are going to challenge the system and speak truth to power. You know? I picture yeah. the breakfast club. The, the, see, the end of the breakfast club where they're talking about themselves, we've kind of heroicized this idea of mm. the outcast of like the outcast usually is the one who really gets it and the one that really sees what's yeah. going on. Um, and, and you know what, to be fair, let's look at scripture. That's kind of it. I, I like how our pastor talks about when uh, Jesus is talking, uh, doing the Sermon on the Mount. He refers to the, the people there, I think the either the Greek or Aramaic or whatever word that he uses, anavim. And the Anavim are just like the lowest of society. They are the outcast and the misfits. They're not the ones that would ever be considered for the Sanhedrin. And those are the ones that he's going towards. So it's like, it seems like it's taking all these very biblical principles of, yeah, go to the, 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 uh, traveler on the road and the, the lame and the blind and bring them into my house. And it's like, it's this really great idea, but then it's applying it to, a group of people that that's not what he was referring to. Right, right. Well, uh, let's get into this first clip. She kind of starts by complimenting Pete Enns. And for those of you who don't know who Pete Enns is, uh, he is a former seminary professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, conservative. Oh, he was a professor there. I believe he was. Oh, I I, you said he went there. I didn't know he was a professor. You know, I could have that wrong, but I, I'm fairly certain he was a professor. And then he kind of changed his view on the Bible and lost his job. And uh, he wrote a book called, uh, I think it's the uh, Because the Bible Tells Me So, sort of jumped on the bandwagon of typical critical scholarship and sort of adopted this hermeneutic that, you know, the God that's in the Old Testament is evil and immoral. And they the people were just writing what they thought God was t- saying to them, but it wasn't really accurate. And, and it's, you know, he's still, I don't know where he's at now. I know when he wrote that book, he was still sort of maintaining uh, the cross, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't yeah. know where he's at now, but Anyway, so she went on his podcast, and so they both have a similar story, a deconversion yeah. story, and he is also doing that reverse evangelism to, to try to pull conservative Christians away from their, you know, Stone Age Neanderthal <laughs> approach to the Bible. So um, she starts off by complimenting him, and she says, you know, your podcast is so important for us who are listening to new interpretations and asking new questions. And this, that's the first, like, to me, that's such a buzzword in the progressive world. They, it's, they really believe they're asking new questions. Yeah. Like these have not been, these have not been asked for the last 2000 years. Yeah. Like these are new questions. I mean, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so much of the theology coming out of the progressive world, Jay Gresham Machen dealt with in his book in the Mm -hmm. early 20th century. So it's, you know, it's, this is really I, I really do believe this is just recycled and repackaged early liberalism of the early 20, 20th century that Machen was yeah. writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. okay, so let's go, let's go to our first clip. I grew up incredibly traditional, straight up Southern Baptist, exactly like what you think. I was the child of that tradition. I was the youth group kid of that tradition. I went on to be the college kid of that tradition, doing the right thing by A, going to a Southern Baptist college, and B, making sure that I got married before I left. And so 
I didn't grow up in an environment where questions were asked, much less welcomed. That just, I didn't even know we could do that. I had no idea that we had permission to press hard on our faith. Of course, this was always to me couched as a, not just a duty, but really an indicator of faithfulness. You know, that asking questions or doubting or pushing on an interpretation or listening to a teacher outside of our stream, that was definitely shady. That indicated that something is really off with you. So So I have to, this is idea of I didn't even have permission to ask questions. It's like, I think of how welcoming Jesus was when Mm. Thomas was a skeptic. It's like, you didn't get the feeling that he was mad at Thomas for wanting evidence. You know, he he says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. But then I also think about the Bereans where it talks about, and I'm not sure exactly where that is, where it talks about the, that Paul came and spoke to the Bereans and they examined the scriptures to see what Paul said was true. And they were counted as more honorable and more noble than the Thessalonians who did not do this, who did not examine. So it's like throughout scripture, we see these encouragements. Thessalonians, I think it's 521. It says, uh, test everything and hold fast to what is good. Test everything. I mean, we are, we are called to ask these questions. So this idea of she had no idea that there was permission. I mean, her church might've been like that, but that's not what scripture says. In fact, that's one of, in my diagnosing doubt talk, that is one of my risk factors that I talk about of is, is a highly hyper-fundamentalist, uh, very rigid upbringing, um, that can predispose someone to doubt. So, so anyway, that, 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 that little story kind of fits with uh, step one in Michael Kruger's post of, you know, you talk about your upbringing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, okay. So now she's going to get into, kind of what it was that caused them to shift, you know, the study that they did. So theology for us shifted. And as you know, that was a lot of work. That was a lot of labor. It wasn't just a feeling that was incredible amount of study and inquiry and new relationships and hard conversations and prayer, which is years, years. And, and our theology moved on that topic and that for us, we're fully convinced and convicted that our LGBTQ friends and neighbors should be fully welcome um, into the church, into leadership, into life of faith. So obviously that put me at odds with a great deal of at least commercial Christianity where I have resided for some time. Commercial Christianity gave me a career, so it's no small connection. Now, I, f- I found that kind of stunning, what she said there. Um, she talked about commercial, it put her at odds with commercial Christianity, which she said she was a part of. I thought, I, I actually did think that about is so weird. That's strange to me. The fact that she, I would never call Christianity my career. That, that did feel a little odd to me, and... Well, the fact that she was distinguishing it as commercial Christianity, like she was basically admitting what I've been doing for the last however many years, all my books and everything, that was commercial Christianity, which is like, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out what she means by that. I'm trying not to read too much into it, but it almost sounds like she's saying, kind of acknowledging like that wasn't real. What's, what's real is now, you know, that was just commercial. It's an, it was an interesting statement. Yeah. That's funny. I didn't put that in my notes, but I was a little confused by that statement. I know that I did think, huh, like, cause I haven't heard that as necessarily a category before. And I, it's like, I do understand what she means by it. She means the people who are the speakers and the teachers for a living, but 
I don't know. It just kind of set, it, it felt funny. It set, yeah. So, um, so with this next clip, she's going to go on and talk about just sort of like some of the pain of being painted as a heretic and, and, uh, just a little bit more about the journey. I actually want to, I have some things to say about this next one. So actually, before you go into that one, I want you to make the point that you made, um, before when we were talking about, I think her husband came out with a mm -hmm. statement after they had gone through all this. Cause I think she was the one that was getting fed to the dogs. Yeah. Uh, when they came out with this and he was like, well, hold on, we came to this decision together. And he talked about all the study that he had done. Mm -hmm. And I, and I actually remember seeing this one on Facebook, um, even though it's like, I never really followed the whole original Jen Hatmaker thing, but I saw the thing from her husband mm -hmm. where he talked about all the books that he'd read and you made an interesting comment on that. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in this particular post, Brandon, her husband had sort of just kind of come on and said, here's, here's why my mind changed. And, mm -hmm. uh, it was a very thoughtful post. It, it was thoughtful and it was thoughtful. Um, yeah. obviously they are intelligent people, but she, she says at one point in the podcast that this wasn't an emotional decision. Like people accused her of, uh, just making a decision based on her feelings. And so she mm -hmm. said, this wasn't about feelings. And then she says at one point in the podcast, this was an academic intellectual, like deeply studied shift. Yeah. Um, which was really interesting to me because first of all, just a note on the feelings talk, uh, almost everything she does in this whole podcast is all feelings language. I did notice that as well. <laughs> yeah. In fact, she even goes on towards the end, which I don't have this marked as a clip, but she said something about how this all feels now. Almost all of the descriptors of what's been going on in her life is feelings language. Like she's drawn, she's bringing us through this journey of all this pain. And, you know, I mean, others have gone through this. Rob Bell has gone through yeah. this, for example. And I, I've spent the last week with Rob Bell because I'm doing <laughs> some research. So I read his book and I've been listening to his lectures and, you know, like he kind of acknowledges pushback he's gotten, but he, he just kind of makes a joke out of it and, or makes a little lesson out of it. But it, it's interesting that she's kind of claiming that it's misogyny that's behind that, that's saying that she's feelings oriented, that she's claiming that that's, she uses the word misogyny and connects it with yeah. that. Well, I thought the thing that you, you had pointed out, which um, was so interesting is that all the books that they read, yeah, said, yeah. You know, we've done this academic study and this is the, the books that we've read in every single book was a, a lay level book. Mm -hmm. It was not an academic book right. and B every single book, except for maybe one was from people who had already changed their minds. So it's yeah. basically... Well, she's listed th these books here. So she read a, they read a Michael Brown book, which would be the non-affirming. Mm -hmm. Michael Brown, he's SES, right? Yes, he's an adjunct okay. professor there. Um, yeah. So then they read Preston Sprinkle, who's also non-affirming, but... Um, you know, very merciful, of course. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then they said this other one I haven't heard of is non-affirming, but sympathetic. So I'm not sure kind of like what that means. And then they're like, they list two or three affirming ones mm -hmm. and what, and, and you exactly what you said, what, what stood out to me is that none of these books are academic. None of these are scholarly works. These are all lay level books written by people who are, or not like some of them are scholars. Like Michael Brown is a scholar. I was going to say, Michael Brown's got his PhD. So yeah, he is he's a scholar. a scholar, but it's a lay level book. So mm -hmm. they didn't read uh, Robert Gagnon. They didn't read Bernadette Bruton or William Loder or any of the scholars that specialize in sexuality in the ancient world and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So what you have when you read the scholars is pretty much universal agreement that the yeah. Bible condemns every form 
of homosexual behavior. Now, yeah. where those scholars will differ, and these are the people that are writing the 500-page books, the 1,000-page books, and they all agree that it doesn't matter if Paul knew this new category that they claim is a new category of mm -hmm. uh, monogamous, loving, same-sex relationships, uh, most of them would say that's not true, that Paul absolutely, there was that category. It wasn't the most common expression, but it existed. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But either way, he wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, now, where they will disagree is, you know, Gagnon is a conservative Christian, uh, Bruton, Loder, Danovia, these guys, they would mm -hmm. say... The Bible condemns homosexual behavior, therefore we don't believe the Bible, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, but they... Which is at least a fair reading. Sure. Saying like, you know, if, if I'm not going to, if I'm not going to agree with the text, then, you know, I'm not going to agree with the text. Right. Instead of saying, well, I, I want to have the text and not agree with the text. Exactly. And how can we make this fit? And together? so you really just, you really just have this one category of people writing books and it's the, re, the revisionist mm -hmm. Christians. That really stood out to me. I'm glad that they didn't make an overnight decision. I mean, I, I commend them for that, but you can't really call. And now, again, now I want to say this too. It's possible they read more books than they listed, yeah. um, but these are the ones they listed. And I would think if I was going to say I'm making an academic decision, I would list the heavy hitters. Yeah. So one of the things that confused me about, and I actually had to put the podcast on pause and listen to this and try to think about what she was talking about is she said that, you know, she, she kept saying that her shift was an academic one, but when he really pressed her and said, what, what was the moment that this shifted for you? She mm -hmm. said it was when she was around, um, people in poverty and how she realized that something yes. that she'd been teaching or I don't, not even teaching or believing that if it wasn't true for them, then it just wasn't true. And she was yeah, she like, specifically mentioned doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. She, well, the, like the doctrine that wouldn't be true for them. Yeah, exactly. And I was trying to figure out what it was because I'm sitting there, you know, kind of go through my doctrine and thinking, you know, like, you know, because I always like to talk about how if I were to write a book titled, you know, Promises of God, it would be much shorter and much less popular than everyone else's because <laughs> it would basically say, you know, I promise you are going to have trials and tribulations. Yes. And that's going to be our promise. But also, I promise I will be with you. That's that's kind of our guaranteed. So I was trying to think of like, well, what what are all these things that she's talking about? And she wouldn't name them. That was the frustrating thing. She wouldn't name yeah. what it was that made her like that caused this big shift. And so, yeah. So go ahead and play the clip for that one. Interestingly, uh, in our world, the beginning of some of that unraveling was simply our personal connection to and exposure to poverty, if you can believe this. I just, we had spent a, the majority of our adult life in basically affluent churches, all white. So it just incredibly homogenous set of experiences and people. And so our exposure to poverty, when that was a, a piece that God sort of wrote into our story, is really what started some of the early tremors because some of your certainties break down upon a greater exposure. Because if it's not also true for a abused, poor, addicted, homeless woman, then it's not true, right? So some of the, the doctrines that I was holding dear really only applied to me and my friends. When I tried to apply it to people on the margins, they were disintegrating. And the funny thing was that when she, 
he had asked her the question. He was asking her the question on basically where the shift happened for her doctrine for the LGBT community. And she went back to this whole poverty thing, but she never really tied it back to, I'm like, okay. But I think I I heard something there that I hadn't really picked up on the first time that you had mentioned how a lot of times, once people start questioning this one aspect, they question everything. And so it sounds like her questions actually came in somewhere else And then she was questioning everything. And part of that everything was the LGBTQ. Yeah, that's a good observation, actually, because she isn't just talking about that one doctrine. And I do, like you said, I wish she would have said what it was, because uh, as I've shared in my story, I grew up uh, around a lot of poverty. My mom, it was very important to my mom that we were down on Skid Row in L.A., working the soup lines. I mean, at 10 years old, I'm, I'm like, you know, rubbing elbows with prostitutes. And I mean, that was just part of my world. I know. I'm so I'd like, I need to do much better. Um, (laughs) she did that. She was way better at this than I am as a mom. But I mean, in Christmas Eve, we would on Christmas Eve, we would, we would go down and pass out sack lunches to, um, homeless people. I mean, this was, this was my life. So I am so puzzled by her statement because I knew addicted, abused, single moms, and what they needed was the gospel. And the gospel transformed their lives and the gospel playing itself out among other real, true Christians taking care of these people, giving of their own selves. And so I think that what she's maybe saying is that she was raised in such a bubble, Mm -hmm. perhaps, that when she was exposed to to poverty, and, and this is a great quote, okay, this is Scott Sauls, who's the, uh, pastor of Christ Presbyterian in Nashville. And he put this on Twitter, and I think this applies. He said, the poverty of affluence, and then he defines it this way. The poverty of affluence is being so accustomed to purchasing comfort that we have no category for suffering. Oh, God, that's good. That's really good. It's almost like there was no category there. So she didn't and this is so sad, but maybe realize yeah. that the gospel is the best news for that uh, addicted. And part of that isn't just the preaching of the gospel, but the taking care of her and providing for her, which I saw happen all the yeah. time. Um, so I, I, yeah, I found that, re- I thought that one was really puzzling too. I didn't really get that. Yeah. She never really explained how she went from poverty to the LGBT. So she might, it might've been one of those things where I'm seeing this group of people who's downtrodden that needs my help. What other group Mm -hmm. is downtrodden that needs my help? Okay, so how can I help them? And maybe that's the connection, but I'm not really sure because she never really says. The closest thing she did to come to kind of explaining that was when she said later, you know, when she read what Jesus had to say about the poor, like, oh, he really meant that. You know, so maybe she's referencing taking care of the poor, but I mean, Christians are doing that all over the world. I mean, that that's just undeniable that Christians are taking aid. And uh, I just saw a post today from a friend of mine who's a pastor that they started a preschool and middle school in Haiti, and they're adding a grade every year. And I mean, Christians are doing these things. Well, you know? I would disagree with the whole undeniable thing, just because it is so... It's interesting to me how many people will, uh, they they cherry pick their sources on, you know, what the church is doing and they don't see, like, I I know there was people that were talking about, like, um, people were going around during some of these, doing research during some of these, um, like hurricanes and tornadoes and all Mm. the things going on and interviewing and asking people, where are you coming from? Who, who are you here with? And by and large, I mean, a huge majority if, uh, we're all from churches. Mm. 
But that's not the thing that gets talked about. The thing that'll get talked about is some guy who makes a jerky comment on Twitter and yeah. a court, and then suddenly that represents all of Christendom. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I meant. It's it's just if you look throughout history, Christians have been the ones, not that they're only ones, but for the yeah. you know majority of of especially history here in America, I mean, Christians are the ones taking care of the poor and um, hospitals are named you know, after. Yes. You know, first Presbyterian hospital, or, you know, I go to Presbyterian yes. hospital, you know, in Dallas, all of these things were started by churches. Right. The next thing she kind of talks about is how what's, and I'm not sure if I quoted this correctly, what's written about homosexuality is contextually bound and there's not much in there. Mm. And I thought, really? Yeah. <laughs> is there really not much in there? Yeah. And if there's not much in there, how did you come to such certainty on your position? Like, even if I were to grant that there's not much in there, then the most you can make of that is an argument from silence. And she seems to be very sure of her position. Um, Mm -hmm. I heard somebody else talking and I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about the things that the dichotomies that God created when he first created the earth. It talks about, he created, you know, light and darkness. He created land and the sea. He created male and female. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's part of this dichotomy of things that God's creating that was there from the very beginning. And so this idea of like, eh, there's really not much in there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's the kind of the narrative of the revisionist is that scripture is so vague because um, there's not really, you know, they the claim they make, which I don't accept, I don't think this is right, but they're saying that there was no category of a loving monogamous same-sex relationship in the first yeah. century that... Now, I, again, like I said before, the primary expression of homosexuality in the first century Roman Empire was abusive in nature. It was pederasty and yeah, master-slave and this type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I don't grant that that category didn't exist, but they're basically saying all the verses in the Bible about homosexuality aren't talking about what we're talking about. So therefore they can say, this is really vague. The Bible's really vague on what we mean by homosexuality. So this, you know, in this next uh, clip we're going to play, this is what she's talking about was the kind of the kicker, the, the, the thing that caused them. Is this the fruit one? Mm -hmm. So, okay. So this, we can say, this mm -hmm. is like the thesis of her talk. Mm -hmm. So we can pay attention to this one as the thesis. It was actually Jesus's teaching on fruit that locked us in hard when, you know, basically Jesus is like, okay, well, some things are hard to understand. Some things are confusing people are confusing, there's conflict. So when you're not sure, you know, when, when there's something, be it a a relationship or a person or a doctrine, whatever, um, that feels ambiguous or it feels contentious or there's tension around its interpretation, look to the fruit. Like the fruit's going to tell you the truth because ultimately one, however you slice it, you know, a good tree is going to bear good fruit and a bad tree is going to bear bad fruit. And there you go. There's a clue. And then she goes on to describe the fruit from both the affirming and then the non-affirming tree a little bit later in that same section. When I look to the fruit of the non-affirming Christian tree, the fruit was so universally bad. It was suicide. It was broken families. It was um, folks kicked out of their churches. It was homeless teenagers. It was self-hatred and self-harm and depression, crushing loneliness, separation from God, self-imposed. And I mean, there was the occasional shiny apple from that tree. And those those are the apples that that camp holds up. 
But look at this apple. Look at this good one. It's a beauty. But it's rare. If we're being honest, the fruit of the tree is rotten. And then, again, exposure. Exposure is such a great teacher. When we begin to be exposed to the to the fruit of affirming the affirming Christian tree, and so we see just gay men and women thriving and welcomed and affirmed and leading, using their gifts to build the body of Christ and to serve the world well. The fruit was so universally good. Now, I want to talk about fruit because this is a big argument in the revisionist world. And um, in fact, Matthew Vines has said that this is the most persuasive argument. And obviously, Jen's proving that true because for her, that was the one. Uh, that that they're just seeing so much bad fruit yeah. that this could not be the right interpretation yeah. because of bad fruit. But what we have to do is go to the scripture and we have to look at how Jesus, yes, what is fruit? How did Jesus yeah. define what fruit is? Yeah, because if we're going to define fruit as people that are, you know, happy, then I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just thinking of that verse about in the, in the last days, there'll be... Um, uh, you know, scoffers who come and, and reject sound teaching and instead gather around them a great number of teachers to say what mm. their itching ears want to hear. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm sure that's a pretty joyful community once they finally found someone to say what they want them to say. So does that mean yeah. that there's fruit there because you have a bunch of happy people? Right. Because if that were the test for fruit, then you could pretty much do, you know, Cheryl Crow's right. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? I just, you think, know? I just think of like the stoners, like that's like the happiest group that you'll ever encounter. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and of course we know biblically that's not how Jesus defined fruit. In fact, Jesus did define fruit in Matthew 7. He said, uh, I'm just going to read from 21. Not everyone who says mm-hmm. to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does yeah. the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And, um, you know, earlier in that, in that book in Matthew... John the Baptist was preaching and, you know, he always preached repentance. Jesus always preached repentance. And one of the Pharisees uh, came to him and and John said this to him. He said, you brood of vipers, uh, this is verse seven, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit Mm. in keeping with repentance. Yeah, that is. That's a really important line there. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So both Jesus and John the Baptist are defining fruit as obedience to God. And repentance. Yes. Repentance and obedience to God. That's the definition of fruit. Now they'll say, no, we're talking about the fruit of the spirit in Galatians. We're talking about the fruit manifesting of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of those things. But if you go to Galatians 5... And you look at the verse that's right before that. It says this, um, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Great news. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) The works of the flesh are evident. And so it goes on to list what the works of the flesh are. This would be the opposite of the fruit of the spirit. So the things that Mm -hmm. are going to list in this list are the opposite of the fruit of the spirit. Sexual immorality, which would have included every sexual act outside of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. 
Yeah. So sexual impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, rivalries, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And basically says, you will not enter the kingdom if you do these, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. So you can't just pluck that scripture out of its context. Um, Oh, but according to her, the the quote that we didn't have, that there's um, what's written about homosexuality is contextually bound. Well, it's contextually bound. Let's look at the context. Sorry. No, it's, it's, it's true though. It is contextually bound. And in the context, (laughs) all sexual immorality was defined as any sexual act outside of uh, a marriage between one man and one woman. And Jesus, you know, of course, we don't have time to get into all this, but Jesus, even in making that distinction, appealed to creation of male and female, that marriage was a gendered institution. And Mm -hmm. so, um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's sad to me that that's a big persuasive argument because it's really actually um, just a really bad definition of fruit. It's not a biblical definition of fruit. So here's another one that I thought was really interesting is where she actually characterizes giving giving examples as being petty. Uh, And she she says, oh, I have a a gazillion examples of this, but I'm not going to be petty. And then she goes to try to make a point that supposedly these gazillion examples examples would refute, but she's not going to even give us one of them. And right. I don't know. I just, I thought that was interesting. Do you have the, the spot for that one? When I am feeling petty, I want to roll out for my critics, the myriad of places in scripture where they have given themselves full permission to interpret that differently than early church fathers. And they are legion. There's a million places and they typically benefit my critics. And so, you know, those changes, of course, well, those make sense. You know, we know better now. We've we've lived a different story. Those were contextually bound. And so the truth is everybody approaches scripture like that. None of us, none of us obey it on its face. I just, I really want to know. And it, this is like literally coming from a really, it's a place of curiosity. I want to know what these legion of places is that she's talking about. Yes. And why she thinks it's petty to answer her critics with, with counterexamples. I guess that would be kind of like the, the the hypocrisy fallacy of, well, you changed your mind on this. So therefore I can change my mind on that. And, and, And that's, that's fair enough. But I'd still like to know what instances, what legion of instances that she's talking about, just because I, I, I am curious about what, what she thinks has changed so drastically in the message. Because I, I mean, I, I think about, and I'm not sure where this is, I'm always good with quoting scripture and horrible about knowing where it is. But where it's saying, even if a, an angel comes preaching another message to you other than the one that we have preached, like, that that to me is like well there there's some things that really have not changed so what are these millions and legions of things that she's talking about that we've been changing on yeah well, i doubt there's legions but um you know I, I since she didn't say we can't really know but a couple that i hear a lot are the, you know the whole galileo thing that the the claim is that the church had read the Bible and understood the solar system to be, um, you know, that the sun revolved around the earth and then Galileo invented the telescope and then we learned different and then they had to change that. And uh, another one is, uh, this one was kind of odd, I've gotten a couple times, is that 
Calvin and Arminius disagreed, and that has to do with salvation. So surely that's, you know, that's a big deal. But ultimately, it just seems like there's this refusal to acknowledge the category of essentials. But, you know, of course, this is why we had uh, creeds throughout church history, which you mentioned before. Yeah. And I actually, I'm glad that you brought that up because I would like to point out the fact that, you know, when she's talking about how ambiguous all these scriptures are on this, if it were truly as ambiguous as she's saying, we would have had debates about this for thousands of years, like we have Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, before Calvinism and Arminianism came along, it was just called predestination and free will. Mm -hmm. You know, people always had names for it because that is vague in scripture because mm -hmm. it really does seem like scripture affirms both of them. So I would expect there to be thousands of years of debate on that. And I would expect for as long as we live on this earth, there will continue to be debate on it. Why? Because the Bible is actually vague on that, and it does seem to preach both. When it comes to something that there's been universal agreement on for thousands of years, I have a problem with saying all of a sudden we've noticed all these vagaries. Mm -hmm. If those vagaries were there, they would have been there before. It's not like we're suddenly smart enough right. to see how vague it is. And that, even that right there, like um, for our listeners that don't know what Gnosticism mm. is, Gnosticism comes from just this belief that there is secret knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this is the kind of thing where the, the dressed up version nowadays would be the people who think there's a Bible code that if you look in the right way, you can discern something that wasn't there. But the Gnostics kind of thought that the secret knowledge was meant for just the select few. And there's just kind of this pervasive feeling about that throughout this entire podcast of this idea of, well, the common man, if he reads the Bible, he, of course, won't see this. But once we really dig underneath the surface, then we realize that the meaning's the exact opposite mm. of what the common mm -hmm. man would think it was. And that right there, I mean, we look at who Christ was going to on the, the, during the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking to the Anavim, again, that word that I used before, these were just the lowest of society. They were the ones that were illiterate. They were the ones that were the peasants. There were all these things. If that is who Christ's heart was for, he would not be having scripture written, A, by like fishermen and stuff. Mm -hmm. Not like, Luke, you know, Luke was a doctor and stuff, but yeah. he, uh, you know, I guess the majority of scripture was, was written by the more educated ones like Paul, but still, if Christ's heart is for the Anavim there in scripture, he's not going to suddenly try to hide his message mm -hmm. so that people are duped for all these thousands of years. And now it's, you know, 2018 here and lo and behold, we finally figured out what he really meant. That is just not biblical and it does not go along with the heart of Christ. Right. I mean, the purpose of this podcast is just really looking at the, how powerful this story is when she talks. In fact, I heard someone, they gave me a quote today. Oh, the, the Shane Claiborne quote. Yeah, definitely read that. That's, um, that's good. And says, you don't get argued into change. You get storied into change. Boy, I agree with, I agree with him and on that. So, <laughs> oh, I do too. Well, and I think there's a reason you look at how Jesus talked. He talked in stories. He talked in parables. Um, the final, the final clip I'd like to play, and this is, well, I don't know how long the clip is, but it starts around 3410. And this is where it's like, so she went from the transition of, you know, the, the nice Jen, you know, talking and talking in vagaries, of course, that I, you know, when I discovered she's not making any claims, kind of like the last one that we talked about, or it started out, it said, well, some people would show me this verse, some people would show me that verse. And I realized they didn't go together. Okay. What are those verses that you're talking about that you're saying don't go together? It's, again, one of those vagaries. But this is where she kind of started making that transition from where I felt like, oh, why is this 
interview so controversial to then I was like, mm, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable with this, especially with the, the fruit thing, because I'm thinking that's not a very academic reason. Um, and I don't think that's a correct definition of fruit. But then going into where all of a sudden I was like, whoa, this is where she's basically starting to plant some very serious seeds of doubt about uh, about scripture, about about faith. So and actually it starts out with one of the 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 hosts. It's around 30, 34, 10, where he starts talking about the Bible. So let's see if we can find that. I would even be I would even put it as strongly as this. I think it's our sacred responsibility to always be thinking about how this ancient faith, which is rooted in an ancient text, how it has developed and changed over two millennia now. And we have that responsibility to connect with our circumstances, which aren't scripted for us. That's right. But, you, but when you do that, as you found out, you know, when you do that, there are people have to be ready to hear that. Mm. Their soul has to be ready to hear that. And if it's not, you know, there, there are more of them out there mm. <laughs> you know, than there are people who have, you know, um, become comfortable with that kind of a process. And I guess the backlash comes. So did you catch what he said there, Elisa? Yeah, yeah. Ancient, um, ancient text, ancient people. Um, and how it's changed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over the last two millennia. And I remember listening to that thinking, oh, it's changed in, in the verse talking about, you know, the, <clears throat> the mountains may fall into the sea, but the word of, the God, but the word of God lasts forever. Uh, or, you know, when, when Jesus says not one jot or one tittle will be wiped from the law, my word stands forever. And so just this idea of they're already saying that they think the word has changed. But the, the, the thing that really stood out to me is he says a soul has to be ready to hear that. And to me, that just sounds like I was like, that was the purpose of all this really nice kind of chit chat that was going on before it was just kind of lulling into a piece. In fact, I think you, you brought up the point you had the, the piece from uh, uh, the silver chair, uh, yeah, because, you know, you and I were talking earlier, we were talking on the phone doing some prep for this podcast. And I, I'm so glad that you kind of came up with this point of how it was sort of led through with this, you know, gets gets you kind of emotional and kind of lulled with this with this story and then kind of gets you in the position to be able to receive really what the message actually is there at the end. And I thought of, well, as you were talking, I was thought of, because I've been reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia with my daughter. And in the silver chair, towards the end of the book, uh, Eustace and Jill are, they're searching for the lost prince. And so they get, um, they're in the underground kingdom and they, they find the prince. And so they're getting ready to go back up to the, um, I don't know what it's called, just the, the Narnia to to where they're from. Yeah. To, to, they, they're, they're like, it, it makes it feel like they're like several miles underground in yeah. this just darkness and yeah, yeah. and th- there's a queen there that rules. And there's a queen there that rules and they're with uh, this <clears throat> character Puddlegum who is like the Eeyore of the, you know, this. I love Puddlegum. Yeah. He's so, that, that's Rebecca's favorite yeah. too. She loves Puddlegum. He's Puddle just kind of gloomy and everything's doom and, you know, he's like a little pessimist and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but so they're all down there and they're, they're wanting to go back up to Narnia now because they found the mm-hmm. prince. And so it says this, now the witch said nothing at all, but moved gently across the room, always keeping her face and eyes very steadily toward the prince. When she had come to a little ark set in the wall, not far from the fireplace, she opened it and took out first a handful of green powder. 
This she threw on the fire. It did not blaze much, but a very sweet and drowsy smell came from it. And Mm. all through the conversation which followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. Second, she took out a musical instrument rather like a mandolin. She began to play it with her fingers, a steady, monotonous thrumming that you didn't notice after a few minutes. But the less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and your blood. This also Mm. made it hard to think. After she had thrummed for a time and the sweet smell was now strong, she began speaking in a sweet, quiet voice. And then she goes on to say, Narnia? I've never heard of that. You know, she's, she's basically trying to convince them. Plain dumb. Yeah, that Narnia doesn't exist. And they're sort of in this, like, intoxicated state where it's very cloying and very sweet. And she's like, oh, you know, there must be something wrong with you because there's, there's nothing called Narnia. And so they go through this thing and Puddlegum's like, no, there is, there, there is. I know that it's there. And so she continues with the music in this very soft, sweet tone. And she ends up kind of convincing Jill that Jill's like, yeah, you know, it, maybe it doesn't exist. And she, she tries to convince them it's a dream. And Jill says, yes, it's all a dream. There never was such a world. And so they're kind of becoming convinced. And Puddlegum was still fighting hard. He's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy this. And so this is just stunning to me because it's just so telling. But, Mm. um, so the, the witch starts gravely and slowly repeating, there is no sun. And they said nothing because she had been repeating this so many times. And then she repeated in a softer, deeper voice, there is no sun. Now this is just killer. She says, after a pause and after a struggle in their minds, all four of them said together, you are right. There is no sun. It was such a relief to give in and say it. (sighs) Oh, Yeah. And so the, the story goes on. They're totally lulled into this deception that Narnia, this thing they know, they know they've experienced, doesn't exist. Yeah. So Puddlegum desperately gra- gathers all of his strength and he walks over. Is it Puddlegum or Puddleglum? I thought there was Puddleglum. It is Puddlegum. <laughs> <laughs> oh my I'm like, gosh. I'm saying, like, I have always said Puddlegum. I don't know what. Oh, that's great. Okay. Hello. Hi, I'm here now. Okay, so (laughs) Puddle Glum desperately gathers all of his strength, and he walks over to the fire, and he does a very brave thing. He puts his bare foot, and he stomps on the fire and grinds it to the ashes and the flat earth. And so first, the heavy, sweet smell grew very less, and um, so they they start kind of coming out of this stupor, and eventually they're able to, to, you know, get out and snap. Yeah. Out of it's it. like this trance they were in. And it just thought that mm-hmm. that demonstrates what this is so much because you can, there is like a freedom that you feel yeah. a false freedom that, that you feel when you finally just give in already. It's like, okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I, I think it's, some of this deconversion evangelism is doing that. It's like just, just the sweetness, the, the emotionalism, the, the drawing you into the story. And, and by the way, I just have to make this clarification because somebody is going to say this. I am not saying that Jen Hatmaker is a witch. Okay. <laughs> she's not even the witch in the story to me. She's one of the people in the stupor that 
fi- feels the relief of finally, you know, I'm not yes. saying please don't interpret it that, that way. That's, that probably needs to be said. <laughs> yeah. It's no, it's, the, but what, what you're saying that one of the other quotes that I wrote down that is she, I think she was talking about the arc of liberation to how we understand the specific doctrine. Mm. That's really strong language. The arc of yeah. liberation mm-hmm. to how we understand this doctrine. That's, there is no sun. There's no sun. And the relief, and the relief of finally saying it. It's like, I don't have to fight this anymore. And so what we're going to be having with these deconversion stories is it is going after, it's not going after the academic. It's not going after the intellectual. It's going after that heart change. It's, um, that's the, what the stories are essentially going to be doing is they're going to be this nice story that lulls you. And then it's going to plant the seed, which even as the host from the show said, your soul has mm. to be ready to receive. And this process of telling mm-hmm. these stories is making them ready to receive it. And so that's that's mainly the point that we want to talk about today. And I, I think we have talked about today. So, um, but yeah, I think we're over time. But would you, would you like to pray yeah, us out, Elisa? Well, Father, we come to you, um, gosh, with heavy hearts. I mean, this, this makes my heart heavy yeah. to know that um, so many are being deceived into something that does not honor you and does not glorify you. And, and, um, but we're thankful for your word that predicted this would happen. We know that, that, uh, evil will be called good and good evil. And, um, we pray that this would be helpful to the listeners and just if there's anybody out there that this would, this would reach Lord, that, that you would use it to, to make them feel grounded and solid and not sort of, and if there's anybody in that trance, in that sort of, um, that that lo- that of uh, the sweet music and the and the <laughs> the dust and the the smell raise up the puddle glums yes <laughs> raise up the puddle glums and we ask all this in Jesus name amen this has been a mama bear apologetics recording to learn more about mama bear apologetics please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com have you been stumped by your kids already Or maybe you have a nagging question of your own that you think would make a good podcast. Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we will do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, mama bears. We are all in this together.